Welcome everyone to the Mind Your Phone podcast. In this first episode, we will talk about the extraction of resources and the mining that is needed to produce our phones. Therefore, we have invited two people from the organization Katapa. They will take us on a journey to the highlands of Latin America, but they will also dive into the deep sea with us. So let's start by letting our speakers introduce themselves and their organization. Hi, nice to meet you, uh, Meryl. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Um, yeah, so my name is Harry Carter. Uh, I'm a communications officer for Caterpillar. Uh, and I'm also a geographer by training and education. I guess that's really where my, um, yeah, my interest uh, comes for social and ecological issues. Um, coming from like a curiosity about the world we live in. Uh, I have a bit of a background as student organizer against um, a type of fossil fuel extraction called hydraulic fracturing in the UK. And it was actually uh, during this time that I became familiar with Caterpillar as an organization. And then since last year, I started um, as a communications officer. And yeah, maybe a bit of background on uh, the organization Caterpillar. Caterpillar is a volunteer movement which strives for a world in which the extraction of non-renewable resources is no longer necessary. So the extraction of such materials always entails major social and environmental impacts and fuels conflict. So in working towards social and environmental justice, we often focus a Caterpillar on mining issues, such as ecological disasters, human rights violations, and with a particular focus on Latin America, where we support local communities at Ecuador, Bolivia, Peru, and Colombia, who are also threatened by large-scale mining projects. In Belgium, we carry out educational awareness raising events as well on these topics. Um, and we also actively look for alternatives to our current destructive way of producing and consuming, um, especially products containing metals. And then we have our second speaker. Hi, uh, yeah, thank you for inviting us. Uh, really nice to be here to, to participate. A little bit about me, my name is Maxime. Um, I studied journalism in Ghent, uh, followed by, by a postgraduate in sustainable development. And within this postgraduate, I did my internship in an NGO in Nicaragua uh, on women rights. And that's when I learned about the possibility to do, um, uh, to get the volunteering position in Cusco, Peru. Uh, so I applied, this was with Prudelic Dela. Um, I got accepted and so I've been in Peru since July 2017. Uh, the plan was to come just for one year and work in Cusco as a volunteer with Prudelic Dela and uh, their partner organization Derechos Humanos y Fronteras. And they also work uh, mostly on extractivism, human rights, environmental rights. Um, so I stayed there for one year and then I got the opportunity to go to Cajamarca for another year with Catapa. Uh, so from Cusco, I went to Cajamarca and what was supposed to be one year. Um, I just started my third year in Cajamarca. <laughs> uh, so it's been four years in Peru, um, almost four years. Here in Cajamarca, we work with a local organization called Grufides. Um, and Grufides works mostly environmental rights, human rights, 
Um, they have different areas. I'm here as, as the gecko of Katapa, which means that I coordinate the, the running projects Katapa has here in Cajamarca and in Peru. Um, and apart from that, because of my journalism background, I mostly help Grufidus in the area of communication. And the work of Grufidus consists of um, defending human rights. Uh, they have a legal area, they give legal support, they have lawyers working with them. Um, and then they also have like a technical, uh, more biology area in which we do uh, water monitoring. And then um, what else? Uh, and then we also focus a lot on strengthening the capacities of local organizations in environmental rights uh, and focus on visibilizing uh, conflict on an international level. So that's a bit um, what we're doing right now in Peru. So Katapa strives towards a world in which the extraction of non-renewable resources is no longer necessary. Can you maybe start by explaining why um, the extraction of these resources is done and what the relationship with our um, smartphones and uh, other electronic devices is? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, when we think about um, what sort of materials we use in our electronic devices, we can think of gold, which is used in computers, copper for electrical wiring, lithium for batteries, and the global demand for these metals is rising yeah, exponential, exponentially at the moment. And yeah, multinational mining corporations make an enormous amount of profit at the expense of ecosystems and human rights violations. Um, extracting these metals that are used in our electronic devices. So when we think about the supply chain of um, from the start to the final product of maybe a smartphone, for example, your smartphone contains probably around 60 different elements inside it. And throughout the supply chain for a mobile phone, there are stories of hundreds of hands being exploited for its production from workers in mines the surrounding communities impacted by pollution and violence brought by mining, and then the hyper-exploitation which continues into the production facilities and factories where there are different metals um, coming together to create that smartphone, largely focused in Asia. And then when a worker, for example, in an Apple factory commits suicide, we can think how companies respond in certain ways. So instead of thinking about and dealing with uh, the issue which caused that worker to go and commit suicide inside the Apple factory, they instead decide to put up netting around the factories to stop people from falling to their deaths rather than dealing with the issues that caused it in the first place. And then the story of a smartphone really doesn't stop once it's arrived in your hand. Um, in 2019, there were almost 60 million tons of e-waste and this is projected to keep rapidly increasing unless something is done to stop it. And it's this e-waste which is shipped abroad frequently to countries like Angola in Africa, creating toxic wastelands in which children and families are forced to make a living extracting in very dangerous conditions valuable parts from our electronic waste once we've used our smartphones and often with terrible health impacts. So that might give our listeners then an idea of really the whole supply chain from source 
to grave or to the waste lands in Angola um, of yeah the different hands involved and livelihoods that are impacted from our use of electronics. Okay, thank you. There was a very clear explanation. Um, if we go to the start of the process with the mining, um, you told us that there are um, problems uh, evolving from this mining for the environment and the ecosystems in which the mining is done. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, for sure. Maxime, maybe you would like to take this because you're in Peru at the moment and you might have some like interesting case studies to discuss. Sure. So I think when a mining company um, starts their projects, obviously it's it's divided in different phases, no? Like the first phase is the exploration, like uh, checking the ground. Uh, the resources that there are, no, and this is already a very harmful action uh, for the local environment. Um, and obviously from then on, it only gets worse. Like officially they have agreements with local communities. They should like um, form contracts and have all these agreements on how to work. But in the end, it's not entirely the way it goes, obviously, no. And over the last few years, this, this has gotten way worse because instead of underground mining, for example, now in Latin America, they mostly use open pit mining and open pit mining has like an incredible impact on the environment, no? Um, because instead of digging into the ground, it's now explosions that are creating this, this crater and this open pit. And even that's not the worst part yet, like there's a lot more uh, things involved in a mining project. No, there's also um, where they put all the waste. And then they also use these toxic metals like mercury um, to extract the minerals from, from the soil. Um, so there's a lot of like dangerous material. There's uh, ecosystems that get destroyed. There's lakes that are completely dried up. So the, the impact on the environment is huge. And uh, this we can see in, in different forms, no? Like for example, um, a few months back with Katapa, uh, we made a small documentary on the community of Altingo, which is a community here in Cajamarca and it's like right between two big mining projects, no? So it's, it's like a great example of a community where we can see the entire impact uh, of, of mining projects. Um, as in this community, we can find both uh, abandoned mines, like mines that are no longer in use, where we can see the impact of mining years and years and years after the mining project has already stopped operating. So like, it's not just a temporary impact for while the mining company is there, it's an impact that's going to influence the lives of the people living there for many years to come. And then there's illegal mining, and then there's uh, active mining projects that don't uh, obey to the laws um, of mining, no? And also, for example, in this community recently, uh, uh, two years, yeah, two years back, um, the, where they put the waste of the mining project is completely, uh, <laughs> there was an overflow of the waste um, in this mining deposit, which led to, killing 17,000 trouts, which is the income of the entire community. So it's not, it's the environmental impact. 
and on top of that also an economical impact no um and also mining obviously it affects important and vulnerable ecosystems it import it affects nature reserves forests lakes um all these areas that are essential no also for the water supply of the of the communities around the mining projects and also mining itself it uses up a lot and, and like an incredible amount of energy and water no um i think for the for making one golden ring you use about two, 20 000 liters of water so that's that's incredible that's a lot so yeah obviously the the impacts on the environment are are huge uh, it's also proven that these toxic metals that come into the water, the soil, uh, the blood of the people living there, it's, it's, it's impossible to reverse this. Um, so this means that everything's contaminated, the people are contaminated, the food they eat, the food they sell, the foods people all around Peru consume, no? Um, so the environmental impact obviously is, is incredible. And you already touched upon the economic impact uh, so for example the fish who are disappearing also impact the livelihoods um, of the people any other economic and social aspects of the mining yeah um, obviously the first thing that mining projects promise a country or a region where they want to develop a mining project is economic um, development, no? Um, which is something that it sounds really nice and it sounds obviously it makes sense, no? There's going to be a big mining project. Uh, we need a lot of uh, people to work with us. There's going to be employment. We're going to improve your life because you're going to have more money. And obviously they make all these, like, for example, the uh, the example I mentioned is the last uh, big case we worked on is the case of Valtingo. And yeah, they had this agreement with the mining company that promised them like all these things. It was different pages and they promised them better education, um, better health system uh, and obviously the main factor for these communities is that they're going to have more money no it's going to bring uh, economical um, progress and in the end it's not true and it's also it's it's easy to see no because for example the mining projects comes to a community obviously they need um, uh, engineers or like specific workers with a specific background so they can't just give these jobs to people from the community that didn't have this kind of education and they're also not giving them this kind of education so that's a problem that means that all this uh, economic progress doesn't go to the community it goes to workers they bring in from somewhere else also these mining companies mostly are companies that are not in this case are not from peru they're from other countries so all this economic progress goes to another country and even like the the government of peru only receives this tiny little um percentage no way less than 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 they should receive if we're talking about all this economic progress um and then apart from that also a mining a mining project for example it's not permanent uh, a mining project is going to stay there for, I mean, it, it depends on the region and how big the project is, but it's going to be there for 10 years, 15 years, maybe 30 years, but at some point they're going to have used all the, the resources that there are, and so mining project ends, 
the whole community, region, province, whatever is contaminated. So they can't pick up like agriculture or, or whatever they did before this, this mining project entered. They can't pick it up again because everything's destroyed. And the same is that also a lot of these communities have their income from um, selling milk or working uh, food on the fields now. And so this mining projects enter and it takes away all these, these sources of income. It gives them something temporary instead, uh, where like the majority of the community isn't even going to get a job. And also the contracts they make with the community, they, um, in, in a lot of cases, they find ways to end the contracts before they should, uh, under like some um, false, uh, I don't know how to say it, like false uh, uh, legal uh, rules or something like this, like they find they find the reason, the legal reason to end the contract before they should. So that also means like it's just it's not real what they're offering. No, and it's definitely not something something permanent. Um, and then it's also shown that, for example, where I am now in Cajamarca, Cajamarca has uh, produces 25 of the uh, gold production nationwide, which is a lot. So Cajamarca should have a lot of money. Cajamarca is the poorest region of Peru. And so it's like there's all this proof to show that it's not true. Mining, mining projects do not bring all this economic progress, at least not to the region itself, no. And then as for social impacts, obviously there's a lot more um, a lot more than just economical or environmental impacts, no. Uh, obviously there are the health problems. There are uh, all these people who have toxic metals in their blood. Um, here we can see, for example, the case of Choropampa also here in Cajamarca it was 20 years ago where there was this huge uh, mercury spill in the village and it just, it entered the soil, it entered the air and all the people in Chiodopampa are contaminated and have toxic metals in their blood and they're dying. They're literally dying and nobody's doing anything. So the impact is huge in, in also health of the people, no? Um, and then also obviously whenever a mining project enters, they also, the people need to move, no? So that's also a huge problem of, of immigration, of extortion, of repression. A mining company enters and the first step is that they have to buy the land where they want to start their project, which means that people have to go. And so they offer them a tiny bit of money for their land. Um, in some cases, it's people from communities that don't even understand Spanish. They don't even know why they're selling their land or what's going to happen. And at the same time, they sell their land for like a tiny, a small amount of money, thinking it's a lot. But they have to move to a city where they've never lived before. They're used to living on the land and having their land and having their space and um, taking care of their own food, no? So, so the impact on these people is huge. They get sent to a city with a tiny amount of money, which isn't enough for them to live. Uh, and then obviously there's people protesting these kind of things which led to a whole new um, phenomenon, which is the criminalization of protests, where uh, it's not just the mining companies, but also the national police gets involved and like the state and the government. And um, 
yeah, this is even bigger, no? Like even people have a right to protest. People have a right to to defend their lands and defend their rights. Um, so it's really hard to see, like whenever they're doing this, they find ways to repress them and they find ways to put them in jail or put them in prison for things they haven't done just so they won't be able to protest anymore. So I think this is also one of the biggest social consequences, no? That people are, they take away their rights, the rights that, that they have. And the government is also part of this, no? So it's, it, makes the, it makes it very hard to defend your rights and to fight against uh, this this injustice, no? So um, would you say that the government is taking a side of the mining companies then um, against its population? I think so. I think in in the entire history, we can see that the government has also, even though sometimes it they say they don't know, but they've always taken the, the side of the mining companies because it's also them that are approving these mining projects, no, without the input of local communities. Um, and I mean, they have, they've made laws in order to defend mining companies rather than, than local, the local population. Um, I mean, if we look at the the protest in Cajamarca uh, on Conga, like it, it was the people against everyone, against the government, against um, the police, against the mining companies. So I think this showed really well how the government was uh, against the people. No, I mean, people died in these protests, and I think if if that happens, you can't really say that the government is helping. No. And if the government is not helping the people, um, do the people have any other legal possibilities to run to, to seek help, to protect their environment and their livelihood? Um, yes. Um, I think, because also, the government, for example, in Peru has OEFA and ANA, which are two organizations that are supposed to help um, uh, help the, the people in, in, or like help in environmental teams. No, ANA focuses on water and OEFA is, is environmental. Um, but it feels like it's just, I don't know, it's, it's, there's something missing because I've went to some of these meetings with OFA and with Anna and there's a lot of laws protecting the environment in Peru, but in the end, it looks like just, uh, it's, it's, they do all these investigations that take up a lot of time, but there's no real solutions because even the government still sees these mining projects as a way to save the country, you know, and to give economic progress to the entire country. And that's something that we can see really well uh, right now, um, because obviously Peru is in an economical crisis, not because of the pandemic. Um, and it's the government that's using all these mining projects to reactivate um, the economics. And this is actually also in what I see as a little bit a case of, of um misuse of the situation or of the of their power in this moment because proof right now is in a state of emergency 
sanitary emergency because of the pandemic. So if now they start improving all these mining projects, it means that nobody can protest because we don't have the right to go out and protest in this time. And that's like uh, something that's used a lot in Latin America, no? a state of emergency as a way to shut up the people. And I think that's uh, one of the most clear ways to see how the government is backing these mining projects, no? Um, and so it's really hard to, to fight against mining companies. It's really hard because we can see in all of history that, that the government has their back. And like that's in, in the case of Maxima Acuna, the only way she was protected is because um, she got known on an international level. She got international support, but it wasn't the government supporting her, backing her up. Um, in contrary, no, she has all these cases against her. And that's what happens with all human rights defenders. They all get like a million legal cases against them that in the end, mostly just get um, declined or, or, or just get uh, ended uh, because there, there's no proof. It's just a way of, of shutting people up, but there is no proof. Um, so yeah, it's hard to, to get help uh, from, from the government, um, which is why there are also a lot of uh, NGOs in, in Latin America and Peru now trying to, to give legal support um, and help in denouncing these kind of cases now because it's really hard to fight against the government. Uh, so that's also a little bit um, what Grufides does, for example, no? or what Catapa does um, together with them, is giving the people a voice and giving them a way to denounce and giving them legal support, which is incredibly important. And I think one of the most important factors to, to think about here is also that people from communities don't know their rights. And it's very easy for, for mining projects or for the government to take advantage of this and offer them all these things. And they don't know that they can say no. They don't know that they can say, no, I don't want to sell my land. I have my proof here. This is my land. Um, so I think that's that's a really important task to fulfill, no? to give uh, advice to these communities, to show them what their rights are, um, and then give them also the legal support and, and back them up whenever they want to fight against something. And then something else that we do is we teach like the local communities how to monitor their water. And this is super helpful because in a lot of cases, these communities, uh, have, have tried to fight against mining companies saying that their water is contaminated or that they have contamination in their bodies or that their animals are dying because of contaminations or animals that get there that are born without like with a deform deformation sorry um so there's a lot of proof, but still the mining company says, yeah, but show me that I, I am responsible responsible for this, no? So this is why we give these courses on water monitoring. So these communities can check their water themselves before the company enters, after it enters. And it means that they have the proof in their hands to say like, look, we looked at the water one year ago and it wasn't contaminated. So this is a very important tool also in, in being able to denounce snow. Um, um, yeah. You told us about the case of Maxima Cunha. Can you maybe explain a bit more about the case and how it got international attention? Yeah, uh, so Maxima Cunha is um, from Cajamarca and she had lands uh, close to the mine, um, 
well, where, where the mind Yanagocha wanted to start the Conga project. Uh, and so she lives close to, to the lake uh, where they wanted to start the mining project and see if she refused to sell their land. She refused to leave her land. Um, and so uh, obviously they weren't very happy about this. Um, so they started to try to make her leave in all possible ways. Like they, um, they used violence, they came with the police, they started to scare her away, killed her animals, destroyed her property. Like it was uh, a long story of, of all these violations of human rights against uh, Maxima Acuna, no? Um, so at some point she started to look for help. Um, she also motivated like all the other uh, communities close by and explained to them like what's going to happen if they contaminate this lake. It's not just a lake, it's, the, it's going to influence everyone, no? Um, and uh, she received help from Grufides um, just because of all of these uh, human rights violations. And her case got international attention. Uh, she also won the Goldman Environmental Prize um because she didn't she didn't she didn't sell her land she didn't leave her land and still until today she's still suffering like violation on human rights and she's still yeah being criminalized no but the congo project never happened even though now uh they're trying to to uh start the congo project again as um economical reactivation of Peru. I just wanted to add as well, um, when you were talking about uh, some of the legal frameworks that we can use to um, regulate the impact of mining, I thought, yeah, there's a few different things on like an international scale that are going on that could be interesting to know as well. So um, currently uh, in the EU Parliament, they're considering a legally binding international due diligence framework. And what this basically means is that uh, companies will have to follow a framework of uh, legal rules uh, throughout their supply chains to make sure that there aren't human rights violations and certain environmental impacts. Um, so this is ongoing at the moment, but uh, a legally binding international due diligence framework would really um, help to begin regulating some of the violations that we are seeing going on in, uh, for example, in Cajamarca, Peru, which Maxime mentioned. Um, some governments, they also have moratoriums on mining and extraction. Um, in certain areas. So this basically means that uh, companies aren't allowed to mine in those areas. Um, and a really important one is um, consulta populars, which are basically popular referendums. Um, so the people of the communities that are potentially having a mining site um, where they live, they get to decide uh, if they want to have the mine there or not. So there's actually another place called Cajamarca, but it's in Colombia. Uh, and they had a successful um, consulta popular or referendum where the community actually rejected um, the approach of a mining company to mine for gold there. And they had a big campaign and decided that no, they didn't want uh, a mine there. And that was legally binding. So it meant that the mine could not enter to the community and the community um, took the decision not to allow it. Um, and some other interesting ones are as well that um, protecting indigenous land rights. It's really about um, providing local communities um, with the legal frameworks before the mining companies arrive as well to be able to say this is our land, 
and we have um, autonomy over decision making on it. So protecting Indigenous land rights is a really important one because um, Indigenous people, also known as guardians of um, the rainforest, or and they protect some of the most biodiverse areas on the planet. Um, so this is another important one. And then we can also look at um, legal frameworks to prevent um, mining companies from cutting and running. So often mining companies arrive to a place, they'll extract the resources, maybe over a five, 10 year period, it could be longer. And then before the mine has to close, they will sell it off to another mining company. So they don't have to pay then and, have, and they don't have legal responsibility for the restoration of that mining site. So if we had some legal frameworks um, in place, which prevented this cutting and running, and also gave legal long-term responsibility to, to those mining companies for the site's restoration, that would be a really important step change in changing their behavior. And yeah, in Ecuador, they've recognized the rights of nature also in their constitution. And this has been um, really important over there for allowing communities to also um, take to court um, decisions to allow mining to say that actually if you're going to allow mining here, you're not recognizing the rights of nature and you're damaging those by allowing mining. So this is another tool that's been used to prevent mining um, in certain places. And yeah, and also CATAP is working on worker and community-led monitoring of mining sites. So it's actually the people who are living there and the workers in the mines who are monitoring what's going on and then they can report back um, to uh, different companies and to different frameworks to say when there's human rights and environmental violations going on. So they can't continue without anyone knowing about them. So it allows for more transparency as well then. Um, so these are some interesting uh, yeah, tools that could be used more often and need to be used more often um, to protect communities in a, in a legal way. Yeah, very interesting. Um, we've been talking a lot about Peru and other Latin American countries, but is mining something exclusively to the so-called global south, or can we see in Europe, um, closer to home also, problematic cases, for example, if I think about um, health issues in Peru, and I also have to think about the case of Umicore in Hoboken in Belgium. So what about extraction in Europe? Yeah, Europe's had um, quite a long history with um, extraction and mining. So where I'm from in Wales, we have a long uh, history of, in South Wales, having lots of mines and that's replicated a lot across different parts of um, Europe as well. I think in the South of Belgium, there was lots of mining going on as well. There's lots of different pockets of history associated with mining. And yeah, what we're seeing at the moment is um, a new strategy coming from the European Parliament and the European Union um, to bring back the sort of extraction and mining that UE countries have for decades been happy to outsource to countries further afield and bring it back to Europe now. And um, this is problematic for the same reasons that it's problematic elsewhere but also because more mining leads to more fighting. And we need to reduce drastically our impact on the planet while we can focus on sustainability and well-being. And mining doesn't allow us to do that. 
Um, and yeah, the example of um, Yumiko as well with the pollution, and that was coming from a recycling facility, I think as well, right? And uh, yeah, they found lead in the blood of children living around the site. And that really is a warning sign to everyone that if this is coming from a recycling facility, we know mining is a lot worse than recycling. So we really have to be cautious about that. And yeah, I think it's important to note as well that with mining, it's a high risk industry and their main focus is for shareholders. So to increase the value of shares for shareholders and profit and they're always continuously pushing to cut costs. And this obviously comes at the expense then of local communities and the environment. Um, and yeah, we've seen already that they're trying to push mining in certain regions of Europe. So in Spain and Portugal, there's been communities who have been organizing against certain mining companies who are looking to extract a variety of uh, metals and minerals, but uh, one of note is lithium as well. So you might hear more in the future as well about lithium, particularly coming from Spain and Portugal. Um, and there's also a risk of deepening environmental racism and social inequality within Europe with um, the return of more mining, because mines are not gonna be built in Paris, Berlin or Madrid. These projects will target protected areas near mountains and rivers and communities which aren't the capitals of the country and often either the mining sites or also the refiners which are needed or maybe some more of the recycling facilities these are normally situated in lower income communities communities of color where there's often less um yeah less organized resistance in the sense of there's less financial power to oppose these projects and then obviously then we see a disproportionate impact on those communities as a result and we can look at Canada as well as an example if we think Canada okay similar to Europe in some aspects they have a lot of mines there and on the environmental justice atlas we can see that they have over 20 cases related to mining impacts there so yes it's a quite a worrying trend that we're seeing um, so that's why Caterpillar last year, we signed a letter with hundreds of different organizations to oppose um, the return of mining to Europe and also to call for a systemic change in our approach to the economy, which re requires a reduction in mining and um, an enhancement in aspects of the economy associated with well-being, care and repair, for example. Yeah, so mining is something that harms all over the world, but I, I read about companies exploring um, the possibility of deep sea mining now. Could this serve as a more sustainable solution for extracting resources? I'm glad uh, you brought this up because it's quite topical at the moment um, because I've seen Greenpeace have also been um, targeting some mining companies. And actually it's very topical for Belgium because um, there's a company called Global Sea Mineral Resources. They're a subsidiary, so a smaller part of a bigger company, a dredging group who are called DEMI. And because of the formal support of the Belgian government, uh, this Belgian company, who we can call GSR, they've received actually a concession for exploration 
uh, for deep sea mining in the Pacific. And it's going to be an area which is five times the size of Belgium. And deep sea mining might initially sound like, okay, this could be feasible because it's very remote. There's probably not much down there. But actually what we know from scientists and biologists is the deep seas are extremely important um, to how the planet functions. So the deep sea is the largest ecosystem on the earth. It makes up 90% of the earth's surface area, uh, of the earth's um, biome area, I want to say. And uh, yeah, the deep seas are already under threat from plastic soup, overfishing, pollution, created from massive dead zones, um, from the release of um, uh, agricultural chemicals through our rivers into the seas. And uh, biologists are discovering that what they want to mine, which are these tubers and chimneys and crusts, which are found on the deep ocean floor, actually full of life. Um, and that are really essential building blocks to uh, the ecosystems in the sea. So for example, on the deep sea uh, floor, there's microbial mats, which is super important for the food chain because these provide nutrition for species above them to feed on. And without these microbial mats, we will see a collapse in the food chain. Um, it was also important to note that um, they've discovered uh, through different research reports that deep sea mining will be incredibly disruptive and damaging because they will discharge wastewater into the sea from the mining process. Um, the rejected mining material will be pumped back into the water as well. And as the excavators roam the seabed, uh, they will essentially clear cut all the sea floor. So harvesting those deposits of minerals and metals while essentially the equivalent of um, cutting down forests under the water. Um, so, Caterpillar last year, actually, we organized a deep sea mining uh, webinar because we saw this was coming and it was an important topic to raise. Um, yeah, and we were examining the impacts of deep sea mining and we worked with um, Greenpeace and Seas at Risk to put that webinar on. And um, listeners might have seen in the news recently that um, Greenpeace activists have actually been targeting um, GSRs, um, excavate um, yeah, their boat, which they're using to test to see how deep sea mining will work in the Pacific. Um, so they've actually targeted and taken direct action against it um, to raise the profile because the Belgian government is actually allowing this to happen um, by giving them permission to claim rights to the, the license which is in the Pacific. Okay, so now, um good possibility um, as an alternative to deep sea mining. So what other possibilities or alternatives for the current extractive model are there then? What can uh, be done to reduce the impacts of resource extraction on the planet? Yeah, in Katapa, <laughs> we uh, focus on uh, alternative economic systems. So we know that we can't mine our way out of the climate crisis because mining destroys biodiversity, causes immense pollution and destruction, which is irreparable and lasts for many generations. 
So in Katapa, what we really look at is uh, alternative economic systems. So we're looking at how can we reduce our consumption but increase our well-being at the same time. Um, so that could be through having um, community initiatives for repair cafes. So we're extending the lifetime of products, also creating wealth in our communities, skilled jobs um, at the same time. Uh, we also uh, work with our partners in the Global South on alternative economic models. Um, so that could be, for example, our partner in Cajamarca in Colombia. We supported them with agroforestry. Um, they have really rich uh, volcanic soils nearby. And they also are one of the largest producers of a variety of Andean vegetables, root vegetables, which they can then export um, in a sustainable way to provide income for the community. Um, so we've supported those sort of policies in Latin America as well. Um, and yeah, we are also working with different partners here in Europe to uh, put through policy changes at the European level. So for example, we support the right to repair campaign, um, which is about, okay, we can see that these companies are creating electronic products, which um, actually they're not so good after a few years. For some reason, for example, my phone gets slower because of something that these companies are designing to make the phone get slower. So we have to buy a new one. It's called, um, it's called obsolescence, I think. And um, these are really important initiatives to really change um, consumption cycles. And also we want to see longer lifetimes on products as well. So we can see phones, which could be modular and repairable. And they, can, they should be designed to last for 10 years and have a warranty, for example, like that. And then we can see really a reduction in mining that's needed and also a, a, a creation of wealth in our communities because we're creating repair jobs, jobs for people to have spare parts, fix them. Um, and we're really creating um, a diverse supply of uh, an economy here in the Global North. It's definitely, as Harry mentioned, uh, important to look at alternatives to mining, uh, obviously. Um, I think it's, it's well, it definitely is also something that we're doing here in Peru, um, is offering alternatives to local communities. Uh, as Harry mentioned, the project in Colombia, we also have projects like this in Peru in which we help local communities um, stay true to their traditions and their cultural background, no? Um, like for example, we have a project on medicinal plants and this also in a way helps to, uh, or also in, in agriculture as, as Harry mentioned, no, these type of, of projects also help the local people to have, um, have an alternative, no? And this also makes sure in a way that they're not just going to accept mining because they don't have anything else because they have something else. Um, so I think this is, is a very important practice. Um, also, I think uh, it's going to be very hard um, to like completely uh, delete mining from our lives. So I think it's also important to think about if there's going to be mining, uh, what do we need? No, what's missing? And I think that's obviously a lot of uh, regulations. <laughs> Um, obviously, I think one of the most important things to, to work towards 
is the consulta previa that Harry also mentioned. It's like, um, make sure that, that mining becomes something transparent, no? Uh, that there is um, space for dialogues beforehand and not just with the government, but also with the local communities, with uh, the people that live there, with everyone, no? So I think this is uh, one of the most important things to work towards that is make sure that, that mining projects become transparent. Um, and that obviously there's, we need more regulations on the environment. Um, we also need the government to, to be more uh, consistent, Noki, because there are laws. There are laws, for example, uh, to close the mining projects. There are a lot of laws implying what should be done before a mining company can just leave and, and leave their mess right where it is, no? There are laws, but the problem is that they're not being followed. Uh, the thing is, after a mine's been abandoned, I think after a certain period of time, the mining company is no longer responsible for the mess they left behind. The government is. So if the government's not doing anything, then then we're stuck. There's nothing more we can do because there's no other person or company responsible at this point. So I think consistency of the government and more help for the government is incredibly important as well. Um, and obviously more regulations on the environment, on the use of water. Uh, also, I think, um, which is important, is focus on environmental education, um, both teaching local communities about the importance uh, of their, their natural resources. Uh, on the other hand, if a mining company is going to start a mining project in the region, then at least offer the local people also an education to be able to help within this mining project so that they're not just the victims, that they get some sort of profit in a way as well, no? Um, also, I think what we need is um, improve, improve the environmental studies because the studies that are happening right now from the government, I mean, are studies that take years and years and years and years and years and don't offer a solution. Um, so I think improving this is, is important. And apart from that, also, maybe some regulations also on uh, protecting tradition and culture, you know, in the places where mining projects enter. So first of all, I think we also need like some sort of um, how do you call this, uh, land use planning, or like making sure in which areas we can have mining projects, in which areas for environmental reasons, cultural reasons, traditional reasons we cannot, and like make sure that this gets followed up, no? Because now it's, it's, it's a mess, uh, and we're losing incredibly important natural resources because there are no regulations being followed. So I think this is important and also protecting traditions and culture of the places where mining projects enter, because I think there's no not enough control here. Um, mining projects enter and this brings a completely different uh, culture to a community where, for example, in this community, they're used to living on a small scale. Um, they live in a community, they share, uh, they all, all families con contribute to this community. They have their traditions. They have their pagos a la tierra, no? They believe in nature. They believe in la pachamama. They uh, make some offerings to their water, to their land. And all these kind of traditions and culture also start disappearing with the arrival of mining projects. And I think this is like a secondary um, effect 
that we sometimes forget about, but it's it's incredibly important. And I think we also need to focus on some sort of regulations to protect this heritage, you know, and, and make sure that these people don't lose their traditions. Because also whenever a mining project enters, for example, they put a church. Um, they uh, promise better education, but obviously the schools they bring to these communities are schools focusing on, on the positivity, positivity of mining projects. So that's not what we need. Um, and this means that mining companies are starting to get some sort of monopoly. You know? They're entering in all aspects of local people's lives. And it's, it, it, it makes them, them lose who they are you know? in, in types of even how they dress or how they speak or how they, how they live. You know? and, and I think it's, it's, it's incredibly important as a government to focus on protecting these, these um, cultures of your country. And for example, tam uh, for example, also <laughs> uh, something that, that was very shocking for me to see was when I, I first arrived in Cusco um, and I first went to, in my first week there when, when everything was still very new, I went to this a uh, place called Espinar, where there's a lot of, where there's a mining, a big mining project um, close to Cusco. And the week I was there, or the two days I was there, uh, this uh, woman died and they found her body on the streets. And so I went to interview uh, some people that lived close to where they found uh, this woman to see what happened. And I never thought that the, 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 like the incoming of a mining project could have anything to do with this. And this was something that had never even entered my mind that obviously because of this mining project that entered in Espinar, it brought a lot of other cultures with them. It brought people from cities to this small little community. And these people, they wanted to live as they lived in their cities or they have like another lifestyle now. So with this mining project, bars came to the communities, uh, clubs, prostitution, um, a lot of uh, completely different ways of living, no? And that's also what these people that I interviewed there told me that they never had any problems of uh, feminicides or, or, or rape before the mining company entered in their community. And I think it's very important to also have in mind these consequences that are secondary, but are, are huge consequences for a community. And also they, get imposed this new way of living that they're completely unused to, um, which is, is in a way we can say it's, it's dangerous, no? Um, so I think that's uh, some of the things that we need to change. Apart from that, something that we're also working on a lot uh, these months in, in Peru is that there has been um, a proposal for a new law protecting uh, environmental defenders and protecting, for example, the water uh, monitoring committees that we have. And I think it's very important to have laws like this to give um, legal support uh, and make sure that these people who are defending their land, their water, their life have um, are recognized, you know, that their work is recognized and that it has uh, legal value and, and that it can be used as a way to denounce the problems in their community. So I think these kind of practices are also incredibly important to try to, I mean, I'm not going to say sustainable mining because I don't think it really exists, but get towards 
a bit more sustainable <laughs> way of mining, no? So I think the most important thing is focus on, on new laws and protection and a lot more regulations and respect them also. No? Yeah, I just wanted to add as well, like from a, a perspective of, okay, thinking of people in Europe as well, more ways we can like move to a post-extractivist model so we don't have to see some of those impacts that Maxime's talking about. You can also think about transport, for example, like we can't see the same amount of electric cars as we have cars now, otherwise we're going to see the earth being mined till it's nothing. So we really need to see a move towards public transport, good cycling infrastructure, which we are already seeing in some cities in Belgium as well. And these are like some really practical steps which will reduce uh, material footprint significantly. Um, and some of the steps that are important to reduce mining at the same time. It's clear to me that there has to be a lot of systemic change yet to be done. Living in Belgium, it can sometimes seem a bit far from home, the problems with mining and everything. Um, in Peru, for example. But do you have any advice or practical tips um, for people living in Belgium as consumers to be mindful about this? Yeah, there's quite a lot of things. The good news is that we can all do to make a difference, to make yeah, our ICT more sustainable, but also to yeah, move towards a, a new type of economy that works for everyone. Um, so on an individual level, we can think about how can we start to reject some of the constant bombardment that we are getting from big companies and advertisers saying we need to get the latest smartphone every two years. So we can think about options of repairing or reusing our devices we already have and upgrading them rather than throwing them away and buying a new product. So there's quite, particularly for like uh, laptops and computers, there's lots of options to be able to upgrade um, different parts of your machine, which you'll find will give it a new lease of life. So you might want to upgrade your hard drive or your graphics card, for example. And there's also increasingly more repair cafes and communities where you can go and be part of a group and do it together, especially if that might seem daunting to someone. I don't, you know, like I actually, um, during the last, uh, the first lockdown of coronavirus, of the pandemic, uh, my laptop hard drive died. And I was like, oh, I need to fix this because obviously there's nothing else to do because <laughs> we're all in lockdown. I need my laptop. So I ended up actually learning. Um, and there's some amazing YouTube tutorials how to just open your laptop up and put a hard drive in. And it's not as complicated as I thought it was when I was like, looking at it I was like oh no but when I started doing it um yeah it was a lot easier than I thought um and then also on a you can work on like an institutional level so this could be through your organization or your workplace or your university to encourage them to implement a sustainable procurement policy so all workplaces and public institutions they normally buy electronics um as in a big collective bundle altogether at once. And in 2011 alone, um, public bodies spent over 50 billion euros on electronic devices. So this is a significant amount of money that they're spending. 
And they have an immense amount of power, of purchasing power as well, to influence companies and the market. So they have to implement better social and environmental standards throughout their supply chains. Um, so an example of this could be getting together with some like-minded colleagues and peers. And yeah, seeing if your workplace would think about joining, for example, Electronics Watch, uh, who are an organization which support institutions to have a sustainable procurement policy. And then there's also lots of exciting campaigns at the moment you can support. So I already mentioned it before, the right to repair. So we can all buy uh, products as consumers in the future, which when they're broken can be repaired by anyone. You don't have to take it to the Apple shop where they charge you almost the same price it costs as the uh, iPhone is to buy again, to get it repaired. Um, and this requires, yeah, the products are designed to be able to be repaired and the plans to be able to repair them are accessible to the public and also to individual repair cafes. Um, and there's also another one, you can join Catapa as a volunteer. We work on lots of different um, topics around mining, extractivism, both in Latin America and in Europe. And if that's of interest to you, you can find our website, catapur.be, and um, yeah, contact us to join. So that was it for the first episode. If you want to know more about what happens with the extracted materials once you stop using your phone, then make sure to listen to our second episode. But for now, I'll let Maxime close it off with some last remarks. So I think it's very important to talk about this. And obviously, it's very important also to, to realize, you know, as, as people from Europe, where it's, it feels like something that's so far away, to realize how we're also part of of these problems now and how we can maybe try to find different ways of living and different and, and try to um, keep in mind what the consequences are of our, our way of living of our capitalism and of our uh, way of consuming now and, and strive towards a bit more sustainable way of consuming. So I think it's really important to have these, these sort of conversations and uh, I really like the opportunity to participate um yeah and whenever uh, we can talk again i would be happy to 